What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. I'm broadcasting from Philadelphia from the Networks Nation Convention. And in fact, we're starting with Adam Green, who is the big cheese over at the Progressive Change Campaign Committee, the website boldprogressives.org. I don't think big cheese is your official title. Co-founder. Co-founder. But big cheese, that that works. That that works, okay. I'm noticing on your webpage here, boldprogressives.org, our candidates. You've endorsed Elizabeth Warren. I want to talk about that in a minute. Ilhan Omar. Tell us the story of Ilhan Omar. Ilhan Omar, so every every year we run a national candidate training for hundreds of candidates in D.C., many state and local. This year we're actually doing 10 across the country, 100-person batches at a time. And she came to one of our original national candidate trainings when she was running for state legislature, got the nuts and bolts training of how to put together a volunteer operation, a field operation, how to talk to reporters, all the other nuts and bolts things you could do. And we were very proud to support her in her primary last cycle. And obviously she and AOC and others are making big waves. Yeah, they really the are. Squad. So are you still doing the candidate trainings? We are. We actually had a big one just a week, a week ago in North Carolina. And we're going to uh, Florida in a couple weeks, then Arizona, Nevada, and Michigan. So if you're a candidate, if you go to nationalcandidatetraining.com, you can sign up to apply for one of those trainings. Candidate. Even if you're running for school board, school county board, commissioner, dog catcher? Dog catcher. Well, leave the dogs alone, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> but anything else? Okay. A little, little, little vegetarian speaking out there. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm a vegan, right? Okay. So okay. leave the dogs alone. I'm with you. Okay. Uh, but you know, we want to be nice to the dogs, yeah. right? Yeah, and, uh, arguably, the dog catcher's job is to keep the dogs from getting run over on the highway okay. because they're not being taken care right. of. Right? If you're so. catching and then cuddling, you're, you're yeah. Good. yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> we're talking with Adam Green, the, the uh, co-founder of Progressive Change. Bold, there you go. Bold, boldprogressives.org is the website. Adam, tell me about your endorsement of Elizabeth Warren. In the last cycle, I believe you guys endorsed Bernie. Uh, or not. Tell me, in fact, about endorsing sure. people in primaries. Because I've, I, you know, with local primaries, I've been burned so many times by, you know, somebody in Pennsylvania, even a friend of mine once called me up and said, hey, I got this great candidate. And I thought, okay, I can trust this guy. I've known him for years and years. We put that person on and it turned out that that was like the number three person in the list of five candidates right. and the top four were all solid progressives and it was just a spoiler and it was just it was terrible yeah. but, so we've just said we don't endorse primary candidates we don't put them on the air win the primary 
we'll do everything we can to get you elected. Right. But you've endorsed a presidential candidate in the primary. Well, you know, our history with her goes deep. We actually this is Elizabeth ran Warren. Elizabeth Warren. We ran the original 2011 draft Elizabeth Warren for Senate campaign back wow. when she was passed over for Consumer Financial Protection Bureau to lead it. And we actually had a member of our staff from Massachusetts, and he was like, there's other progressives in the race. Why are we supporting Elizabeth Warren? In that case, we were like, we're sure there's other progressives, but then there's Elizabeth Warren, right? right. I think Paul Wellstone once said, I would love 10 more of me or one Elizabeth Warren, right? Like, Seriously? She, yeah, there's a quote. I think, I think it's in a wow. John Nichols Nation piece somewhere. Right. She's been a longtime friend, collaborator to so many progressives. We really see her as a great movement player. During the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau Wall Street reform fight, she was the general in the room, you know, saying, here's why I'm negotiating on the inside, how do we have pressure on the outside? And we have found that on expanding Social Security or debt-free college or pushing back against bad trade deals, she's always been a very collaborative person and always goes into battle with a strategy, which we really appreciate about her. In 2016, we did not endorse in the primary, but worked very closely with the Bernie campaign and with the Hillary campaign. Our goal was to have the entire center of gravity in the party move in our direction. We expected Bernie to agree with us, which he did. It was actually a big accomplishment to get Hillary Clinton to utter the words, expand Social Security for the first time, wow. and debt-free college for the first time. And once that happened, I think it actually legitimized many of Bernie's ideas and moved the entire center of gravity in the party such that Senate and House candidates then emulated both of them and started talking about these concepts. So we feel good about that. In this case, uh, we were the first national group to support Elizabeth Warren for president. We love Bernie too. There's other fine candidates, but we think she would be the best president, but also the most electable Democrat yeah. against Trump. Now, one of the policies on this show is you no know, circular firing squad. Yeah. You know, I, I, people call in and they say, ah, so-and-so, click, I hang up on them. Right. So without trashing anybody, okay. let's talk about electability. <laughs> okay. I mean, there are people watching this program and listening to this program who, who support, support all the candidates, right. and I don't want to say to anybody, you know, yeah. frankly, if Richard Nixon, uh, if they could figure out a way to undesiccate his corpse yeah. and prop him up, yeah. I'd vote for him over Donald over Trump. Over Donald Trump. Okay, that's fair. You know? So, electability. Our members also are across many candidates. We've been surveying since the November election, and there's a lot of undecided people. And a threshold question for everybody is, can they defeat Trump, Right. right. So it really matters what conventional wisdom is being peppered at good progressives and good Democratic voters' heads as prepared to go into the voting booth. So when Chuck Todd or others on national TV basically have a definition of electability that's old, old, white, white, old white male conservative, right. you know, bold transformational ideas are too far to the left, right. right? America's not ready for a woman president. It really impacts people. So there's a lot of people who support a lot of candidates who are all united in saying, let's not taint the conventional wisdom about electability by, by you know, pretending that bold transformational ideas are not electable. And I would go a step further and say, as you recall, Donald Trump campaigned against Wall Street speeches, against corporate written trade deals, against corruption in Washington. He was lying about all those things, but he tapped into something very real, which was, was this outsider, shake up the system sentiment, right? Some people were like, I don't even like him, but I think he'll just shake up the system, right? right. I don't believe that we can defeat that with an insider, with somebody whose main brand is cutting backroom deals with corporations or out-of-touch Republicans. I think we need our own equal and opposite version of shake up the system that's more authentically on the side of everyday working people. Yeah, it, it certainly seems that way to me as well. It's amazing times we live in. So you guys have endorsed Elizabeth Warren. Everybody knows she has a plan for that, right? Yeah. But having been on the ground with her in Iowa, in New Hampshire, in Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, one thing I've noticed is that it's not just that she's an academic with a plan. 
she is connecting her big transformational plans with her very personal story of struggle, mm. growing up poor in Oklahoma, being a single mom in Texas who almost opted out of the job market and opted out of being the Elizabeth Warren we know today because of the tension between having a job and having two kids as a single mom. And when she tells these stories in the room, you can feel people leaning forward in their seats. Yeah. You can feel this collective sigh of relief when she tells these stories. And I think that that's the kind of emotive connection we need as we paint a picture of I a have transformational agenda. When she was running for Senate, mm -hmm. I, was, I was at a meeting of high-powered lawyers, actually, yes. um, trial lawyers. Yeah. And she came and did a little private thing for about 40 people. I was in the room. After she left, they started talking about, you know, we really need to do something for this woman. Because yeah. she doesn't do fundraisers. And I, I don't know if she did with her Senate race or not. But, but it was, she's impressive. I, I, I got to tell you that. You know, and she's just this little thing, you know. But she's just like, she comes across like she's a giant. I mean, it's just, she's just extraordinary. So, Adam, great bet. Adam Green, the co-founder of the Progressive Change Campaign Committee. The website is boldprogressives.org. Bold Progressives. Check us out. Yeah, right, there you go. Adam, great to have you with yeah. us again. All right. Good talking to you. Thanks. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's the Mueller Report. We're reading from page 126. Gordon stated that he tried to reach Rick Dearborn, a senior foreign policy advisor, and Mashburn, the campaign policy director. Gordon stated he connected with both of them, he could not recall if by phone or in person, and apprised them of the language he took issue with in the proposed amendment. They're talking about, you know, softening the language in the Republican platform against Russia. Gordon recalled no objection from either Dearborn or Mashburn and that all three campaign advisors supported the alternative formulation, quote, appropriate assistance. They're talking about relative to Ukraine. Dearborn recalled Gordon warning them about the amendment, but not weighing in because Gordon was more familiar with the campaign's foreign policy stance. Mashburn stated that Gordon reached him, and he told Gordon that Trump had not taken a stance on the issue and that the campaign should not intervene. When the amendment came up again in the committee's proceedings, the subcommittee changed the amendment by striking the lethal defense weapons language and replacing it with appropriate assistance. Page 127. Gordon stated that he and the subcommittee co-chair ultimately agreed to replace the language about armed assistance with appropriate assistance. The subcommittee accordingly approved Denham's amendment, but with the term appropriate assistance. Gordon stated that to his recollection, this was the only change sought by the campaign. Sam Clovis, the campaign's national co-chair and chief policy advisor, stated that he was surprised by the change and did not believe it was in line with Trump's stance. Mashburn stated that when he saw the phrase appropriate assistance, he believed that Gordon had violated Mashburn's directive not to intervene. Seven, post-convention contacts with Kislyak. Russian Ambassador Kislyak continued his efforts to interact with campaign officials with responsibility for the foreign policy portfolio, among them Sessions and Gordon, in the weeks after the convention. The office did not identify evidence in those interactions of coordination between the campaign and the Russian government. A. Ambassador Kislyak invites J.D. Gordon to breakfast at the ambassador's residence. On August 3, 2016, an official of the Embassy of the Russian Federation in the United States wrote to Gordon on behalf of Amb Ambassador Kislyak, inviting Gordon to have breakfast or tea with the ambassador at his residence in Washington, D.C. the following week. Gordon responded five days later to decline the invitation. He wrote, these days are not optimal for us as we are busy knocking down, busily knocking down a constant stream of false media stories while also preparing for the first debate with HRC. Hope to take a rain check for another time when things quiet down a bit. Please pass along my regards to the ambassador. 
The investigation did not identify evidence that Gordon made any other arrangements to meet or met with Kislyak after this email. B. Senator Sessions' September 2016 meeting with Ambassador Kislyak. Also in September 2016, a representative of the Russian embassy contacted Sessions' Senate office about setting up a meeting with Kislyak. At the time, Sessions was a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and would meet with foreign officials in that capacity. But Sessions' staff reported, and Sessions himself acknowledged, that meeting requests from ambassadors increased substantially in 2016 as Sessions assumed a prominent role in the Trump campaign, and his name was mentioned for potential cabinet-level positions in a future Trump administration. On September 8, 2016, Sessions met with Kislyak in his Senate office. Sessions said that he believed he was doing the campaign a service by meeting with foreign ambassadors, including Kislyak. He was accompanied the meeting by at least two of his Senate staff, Sandra Luff, his legislative director, and Pete Landrum, who handled military affairs. The meeting lasted less than 30 minutes. Sessions voiced concerns about Russia's sale of a missile defense system to Iran, Russian planes buzzing U.S. military assets in the Middle East, and Russian aggression in emerging democracies such as Ukraine and Moldova. Kislyak offered explanations on these issues and complained about NATO land forces in former Soviet bloc countries that border Russia. Landrum recalled that Kislyak referred to the presidential campaign as an interesting campaign. And Sessions also recalled Kislyak saying that the Russian government was receptive to the overtures Trump had laid out during his campaign. None of the attendees, though, remembered any discussion of Russian election interference or any request that Sessions convey information from the Russian government to the Trump campaign. During the meeting, Kislyak invited Sessions to further discuss U.S.-Russia relations with him over a meal at the ambassador's residence. Sessions was noncommittal when Kislyak extended the invitation. After the meeting ended, Luff advised Sessions against accepting the one-on-one -on -one meeting with Kislyak, whom she assessed to be an old-school KGB guy. Neither Luff nor Landrum recalled that Sessions followed up on the invitation or made any further effort to dine or meet with Kislyak before the November 2016 election. Page 129. Sessions and Landrum recalled that after the election, some efforts were made to arrange a meeting between Sessions and Kislyak. According to Sessions, the request came through CNI and would have involved a meeting between Sessions and Kislyak, two other ambassadors, and the governor of Alabama. Sessions, however, was in New York on the day of the anticipated meeting and was unable to attend. The investigation did not identify evidence that the two men met at any point after their September 8th meeting. 8. Paul Manafort. Paul Manafort served on the Trump campaign, including a period as campaign chairman, from March to August of 2016. Manafort had connections to Russia through his prior work for Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska, and later through his work for a pro-Russian regime in Ukraine. It's the Mueller Report. You know, human beings have been using CBD for probably as long as human beings have been on the planet. And, uh, you know, it's a natural anti-inflammatory, it's non-toxic, it's a potent pain reliever. I'm not talking about the get high stuff, that's THC. Uh, this is CBD, it's in hemp, it's in pot, of course, but it's, it can come out of hemp, which means it doesn't get you high. CBD oil is non-intoxicating, which makes it ideal for people seeking the health benefits of cannabinoids without the mind-altering effects of medical marijuana. And the one that I've been using, and Louise, uh, my wife, is New Leaf Naturals. NU Leaf Naturals. Uh, they make a CBD oil that is spectacular. It's non-toxic, it has potent pain relieving and anti-inflammatory pro properties, 
and uh, New Leaf Naturals makes the absolute best quality, highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic. It's highly concentrated. It contains no additional additives. It's grown in the United States, and the only ingredient is hemp. So the product remains in its most pure and simple form, and it's totally legal, of course. Go to newleafnaturals.com. That's N-U-leafnaturals.com. And save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. Go to nuleafnaturals.com for premium cannabinoid wellness. There's only one place, nuleafnaturals.com. Tom Harbin here with you live from Philadelphia from Netroots Nation. And one of the people here at Netroots Nation who did a presentation yesterday, Ghazala Salam. She's an American Muslim political activist, social justice advocate, and philanthropist. Her uh, Twitter handle is G Salam, S A L A M, number one, G Salam one. And Ghazala, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for being with us. Here Thank you, you for having me. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> First of all, tell us about this uh, program that you have coming up. You said that there's a I mean, I should add, by the way, just as part of your bio, the first American Muslim woman to be inducted into Broward Hall of Fame in 2016. You're a Floridian, recipient of the 2015 Florida Commission on Status of Women Achievement Award, a recipient of the Achievement for Excellence in Community Service. You're, you're out there. You're doing this work. Yes. So tell me about the event you guys have coming up. Yes. So on July 23rd and 24th, we're hosting our first ever inaugural conference for American Muslim activists, organizers, candidates, electeds, you know, anybody in the political environment to come together, you know, um, talk about our um, accomplishments, share the vision that we have for this country, build a path, uh, you know, basically just not just for 2020, but beyond 2020, making sure that our progressive voices are being heard. We're organizing in our local communities, building a bench that is diverse as the communities are. Right now, our representatives don't really reflect our constituencies in any part of the country. So that's one of our focus. And we're really excited that, you know, we're, this is an inaugural event and we hope uh, folks come out to it. And we have a great lineup of speakers, panels, trainings, and organizers. They can learn more about it at uh, MuslimCaucusCollective.org. The agenda is on there, timings, registration, everything they can find on that site. MuslimCaucusCollective.org. Yes. Sounds, sounds yes. like a plan. So you talked about how our elected body politic, essentially, our politicians don't reflect the diversity of America. You know, that's really visible when it comes to gender. It's, uh, I think it's, you know, really visible when it comes to race. And with religion, it's somewhat less visible, but it's still obvious. And, and, and I was so pleased when Ilhan Omar got elected in Minnesota. She's got this amazing story. I mean, you know, she yes. literally, the, they, they lived in Somalia, her family, she was a little child. There was a civil war going on. They feared for their lives. They fled to Kenya. They lived in a refugee camp for four years. I've worked in refugee camps. You don't want to live in one. This, a lot of these places are just hell holes. Um, she, her, she and her family came to the United States, um, became citizens, and now she's in Congress. And Fox News, Tucker Carlson goes on TV and says she hates America. And you know he's doing, in my opinion, I, I watched Bill O'Reilly 30 some odd times call, you know, say, George Tiller the baby killer. And somebody finally said, oh, now I understand what O'Reilly's doing and or saying. And they went out and they shot George Tiller. He was an abortion doctor. And it seems to me that when Tucker Carlson and people of his ilk start talking about Muslims who are doing everything they can to not just be part of this country and be part of our culture, that it's almost, if not a call for assassination, certainly a call for 
some kind of an emotional or political segregation, uh, an otherization on them, yes. you know, as opposed to an us. And, and Muslims have been a part of America literally since the founding of the Republic and before that. And so, A, I'm curious your thoughts on Ilhan Omar and what she's going through. I, I can't imagine having, you know, an ass, frankly, like Tucker Carlson going after, particularly being a woman and mm -hmm. particularly being as visible as she is. I mean, you know, right. because she's wearing the hijab and all this kind of stuff, she's easily identified in a crowd, number one. And number two, what's the broader state of Muslims in the United States right now in terms of two big hits, basically, that you all have taken. You know, one after 9-11, when Muslims were being demonized, particularly by people like Donald Trump, who were out saying, oh, they're dancing after 9-11, which was a lie. And then now with the Trump presidency and the Muslim ban, so I, I just threw a lot at you. But feel free to riff it. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, let's talk about Ilhan Omar. I think she has a lot of courage. Nobody can take that away from her. And she is a servant of this nation. And she's a true American story, right? This is what America stands for. You know, when people think about coming to America, they dream of these dreams, that all of these things can be possible in this great nation. And she's a living example of that. And she's giving back to her country by serving in Congress, right? By serving her constituency in Minnesota. So what Fox News or anyone else has to say, I think they have nothing better to say. This is how they otherize, they put Muslims as others and not Americans. And as you said, um, Muslims have been part of America since the very beginning. This is a pattern. This is a pattern with Fox News, their media, and the Trump administration trying to show Muslims as others, as illegal immigrants, or we have to ban them, you know, from coming to this nation, which is sort of like a direct response to what happened to 9-11 after all of these years, which is what they're trying to do. But the ban itself, when you look at the countries that are listed on there, has nothing to do with the people who flew those planes on 9-11. Right. right, they were all and Saudis. Exactly, or most of Sa them were exactly. Saudis. they were all they were yeah. Saudis. So where is the you know where's the justice in that? That just does not make sense. And so just for the sake of hating Muslims or trying to show them as others and not American and ungrateful uh, illegal immigrants, it's only because of the of our religion. Let's just be honest about right. it. You know, it's just because we are Muslims and, um, you know, and that's not right. That is not what this nation is about. Uh, the founding fathers of this country came here for religious freedom, right? And this is what speaks to millions of people across the world. The, the freedoms that America affords, our constitution gives, you know, to its citizens. And I think that Fox News... The Trump administration currently is trying to take all those rights away, you know, from people. And that's just not what this country is about. And yeah. I think it, they are the ones who are a threat to this nation Yeah. right now. I agree. And, and it wasn't just, I mean, you go back and you read the writings of the founders. It wasn't just freedom of religion. It was freedom from religion yes. as well. I mean, Ben Franklin was essentially an atheist. Thomas Jefferson was a deist. Right. Uh, Franklin sometimes called himself a deist. Uh, in one of his letters, Jefferson talks about how how uh, aggressively John Adams tried to get George Washington to declare his Christianity, and George Washington refused, refused to, do to do so. It. Yeah. And you know, it's it's like this freedom from religion and. 
And you know, people demonize Sharia law, this bizarre misunderstanding of Sharia to begin with, which is a whole other topic. But you know, they demonize it as okay, religion is going to take over, and then they just kind of turn about 30 degrees to another camera and say, and we've got to ban abortion because God said it's wrong. <laughs> you know, and you know, the Pope is, you know, and yes. I was just like, really, really, yes. it's like. Uh, like yeah. my friend Dean Obedola says, you know, uh, it's about Christian Sharia. Yeah. You know, let's, let's not have any other Sharia but Christian Sharia. Yeah. I mean, I, that I, doesn't make sense. There should be no religion. There should be a separation of religion because, and state. Sharia, but every religion has basically its code. Its code of conduct, its code of living. This is how this it's is a way how of we life. conduct ourselves. It's a way exactly. of life. And in Catholicism, in Judaism, there are even basically uh, religious judicial systems, essentially, mm -hmm. that determine who is and who isn't appropriately married, for example. Um, that's the stuff that Sharia is. Right. And, and it's not, you know, obviously it's been badly twisted, not just on our end, but by people like, you know, uh, Osama bin Laden and, and the, the ISIS guys. Right. But like I said, that's a much larger conversation. Um, we're talking with Ghazala Salam. She is an American Muslim political activist, social justice advocate, and a philanthropist. Uh, Ghazala, I really appreciate your being with us. Um, what, what do you want to see happen? What, you know, legislatively, culturally, what are the directions that you would like to see this country move in? I think I would like to see more diversity uh, in Congress, um, not just in gender, but in race and ethnicity as well, uh, because that's really what this country is about, right? The diversity of our nation. And I think that people should not be scrutinized for their faith. We should be free to practice or not practice, you know, as we choose. And everything that we're seeing now is taking us back in time to everything that uh, people have fought for you know, uh, have given up their lives for these freedoms, right? Literally. And so literally, yes, we have to make sure this, I believe that it's the responsibility of this generation now to make sure how are we going to be remembered uh, in the future? What is, this is our fight and we need to make sure that we don't let that happen in this country. Yeah, and there's there's a long way to go with this fight. It's And you're so right. I mean, so, uh, I guess some of us had bone spurs and just couldn't fight, but <laughs> I shouldn't say us, I, him. Yes. Um, but, Who know uh, nothing about fighting. Apparently, tragically, but Ghazala Salam, the organization... Muslim Caucus. The Muslim Caucus. And the website, once again, is... MuslimCaucusCollective.org. Collective.org. Ghazala, thank you so much for dropping by today. Thank you. It's thank real, you for having me. Really great meeting you. It's wonderful thank meeting you, so you as well. Thank you. And I wish you all the best. From Philadelphia, Netroots Nation, and here with me is Lori Wallach, one of our regular guests, an old friend, and uh, as in longtime friend, <laughs> Executive Director of Public Citizens Global Trade Watch. Tradewatch.org is the website and the Twitter handle. What, what, I've got a couple of Twitter handles here for you Wallach Lori and PCGTW. What do you prefer? Wallach Lori. Wallach Lori. Okay. W A L L A C H L O R I. Lori, welcome back. Thank you very much. Great having you with us. So, uh, what's the latest on? You and I agree that, and have for many, many years, that the neoliberal trade policies that really came in with the Reagan administration in a big way. They negotiated NAFTA. George Herbert Walker Bush's administration finalized those negotiations. This was always Republican trade policy. There have always been large chunks of the Democratic Party who have opposed this in the modern era. It's the Sherrod Browns of the world. And yet, this Republican trade policy, the guy who has semi-successfully pushed back against it is Donald Trump. And it helped get him elected running on a Democratic position. 
which is, yes, we need tariffs, yes, we need protectionist policies, and yes, these trade, so-called trade agreements actually suck. They're destroying American jobs. So um, it, it puts us both, I think, in this very awkward position of saying, you know, thank God Trump is having a conversation about this because we've had two Democratic presidents who are unwilling to, and a lot of Democratic members of Congress won't, although some of them are out there screaming into the wind, you know, from Bernie Sanders to Sherrod Brown, like I said. But on the other hand, Trump is doing it completely wrong. He's demagoguing this issue and all this kind of stuff. So long way to set up. Where are we at right now? Where's the whole trade thing going? And also kind of the sub-question to that, and then feel free to go off at length, is where are the Democrats in all this? So right now we're at this pivot point on NAFTA. So obviously NAFTA has to be replaced. Almost a million jobs have been certified by the government as officially lost to NAFTA. Which means it's really probably four or five million. So it's four or five million. It's a way under count. And so it has to be replaced. And Trump repeated what Democrats have said for a long time. Democrats in Congress tried to stop NAFTA. However, the deal that Trump signed to replace NAFTA It wouldn't stop the job outsourcing because the labor and environmental improvements in their enforcement is not strong enough. But he let pharma rig new protections in there so it would raise medicine prices. So it won't fix the existing problem and it would lock in high prices here. So it's in that factor worse than the status quo. Now, on the other hand, he got rid of those outrageous corporate tribunals that have taken hundreds of millions of tax dollars attacking environmental laws, etc. So this gets to your second question. Where are the Democrats? Miraculously, the congressional Democrats are 100% united and Pelosi's being tough and saying to Trump, Either you renegotiate your renegotiate agreements, fix the labor and environmental standards and their enforcement so it means something to stop the outsourcing and to raise wages in Mexico so the draw of jobs is stopped, and you have to take out that pharma garbage or no vote. And she's holding firm. Wow, that's great. So now the showdown is what will the administration do? Now, I read a piece, this was speculative, this was not like New York Times reporting, I, I, I think it might have been over on Daily Coast, uh, it was an opinion piece, um, speculating that she is willing to, or might be willing to offer him a yes vote on his NAFTA deal in exchange for a two-year budget deal so that the budget and the government shutdown doesn't uh, become an issue in the election year next year. Do you know anything about that? I don't know anything about that, but what I do know is that the the leverage that Pelosi has to make it such that there can't be a vote on NAFTA gives her a lot of power because Trump really has nothing to show for all of his trade promises. As you know, the trade deficit's been up every year of Trump. Oh, and 200,000 jobs have officially been outsourced since he became president? Exactly. Relative to even where Obama was, and that was a huge deficit, it's increased. His China trade deal is nowhere. The outsourcing continues. They're making government contracts with companies that outsource. Like everything he promised, China has not been called, has not been listed as a currency violator. None of the things he promised have happened. So the only thing he's got is NAFTA. Mm. And so to deliver on his NAFTA fixing promise and to deliver on his promise to bring down medicine prices, there's only one way he can go through the House Democrats. And he has to and renegotiate the deal. And it requires renegotiating the renegotiated deal. Now, will he do it? Because it basically makes him fess up that his deal wasn't perfect. Right. 
But if he does it, it might be something worth passing, but it's going to be obvious it's the Democrats' deal because right. they wouldn't pass his deal. That's the big, and that could all blow up any moment because what Pelosi has said is, don't put this agreement in until I'm ready or I'm going to blow it up. Yeah. And yeah. they might. Now, you live in D.C., you're, you're in, the, in the scrum, in the milieu, you know, you know what's going on there. And um, I'm kind of glad to be out of town, frankly, but it's, in any case, when Bill Clinton first embraced NAFTA in 1992, he was in the minority among Democrats. He was loudly attacked by a lot of Democrats. Many Democratic voters, apparently about half of Ross Perot voters were actually Democrats. But over time, the Democratic Party moved in that direction, or at least much of it. There's always been a strong resistance among the Democrats. As I said earlier, of course, these free trade deals, uh, so-called free trade deals, managed trade deals for the benefit of corporations, have always been deeply embraced and at the heart of the love of Republicans. Where is the Democratic Party as a whole at the federal level on this now? You know, I, you know, I mentioned a couple of Democrats who've been outspoken. You know, Bernie on my show for 11 years railing against these deals. Um, Sherrod Brown got just reelected by six points in a state in Ohio that went for Trump. How does this break down in the House and in the Senate? Have you done a whip count, essentially? So right now, with respect to this NAFTA deal, the House Democrats are remarkably unified with the Speaker. Even mm. the corporate Democrats, the new Democrats, the ones who have been for TPP, right. have basically all said the pharma crap has to come out, the environmental and labor standards have to be increased, or we're not going to budge either. And they just sent a letter to the president that was remarkable that basically said, don't make the mistake. This is the new Democratic this coalition. This is the Ron Kynes of the world. Yeah, the, the Tim Ryan and those guys. Uh, no, Tim Ryan is not a new dem. He's oh, he's not. very good on trade oh, issues. Oh, he is. Okay. He's a he's a great Forgive champion me. on trade issues. Yeah. He's Beto, like Beto O'Rourke was part of that coalition. Beto O'Rourke is yeah. in that coalition. Yeah. So the congressional Democrats have always been much better than the presidential wing. Right. So you've got the people running for president. They all signed a note, uh, a pledge, saying that they would oppose any NAFTA that had the pharma goodies in it and that didn't have stronger labor and environmental standards, including Better O'Rourke, including Biden. But the truth is, Better O'Rourke, Biden, Buttigieg, Kamala Harris, those guys have been basically in the same place that Clinton and Obama have been on trade. They're not good on trade. You have Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Tim Ryan, who've been real champions on trade. Mm. And you have a couple other candidates who've had a foot in each camp, right. like Gillibrand. So it's a mixed bag on the presidential front once again. And here's the thing, Tom, if you have another Democrat like Biden, who Trump can run against in Wisconsin, in Michigan, the way he did Clinton, oh, you're for having more jobs outsourced? Oh, you're, you're so sad TPP didn't pass. You're the big flacker for it. We're going to lose again in those states. Yeah. You've got to have someone to the left of him for workers on trade. It'll you be have to have challenge. Sanders, Warren, have, someone. It, broadly speaking, the House and Senate, how do they break down? The House is in a very good place for the Democrats right now. They won't support the deal that Trump signed. They right. say it's just more NAFTA, right. and it would lock in high medicine prices. Right. On the Senate side, it's more a mixed bag. There are a lot of very corporate Senate Democrats right. um, who I would say would probably support it. But if it can't get through the House, it doesn't go to the Senate. So the whole fight's the House. Over these next couple of weeks, if you see your members of Congress, folks, you've got to talk to them. There you the go. trick I always say is shake their hand and don't let go until they tell This them. is the Tom Hartman Program. Lori Wallach with Global Trade Watch. Uh, Tradewatch.org is the website. Thank you, Lori. Thank you. We'll be back. 
You know, sometimes I don't get the best night's sleep and uh, wake up in the morning with kind of bags under my eyes. And, and I know this is some this has been a concern of Louise's actually for, for a while, too. And in fact, she, she seems a little more concerned about it than I am. But um, what do you do about that? Right. Uh, you know, you, you, you want to look decent. And, you know, there's been all these remedies, you know, from hemorrhoid cream to tea bags over the years. But frankly, none of them work. What works is Plexiderm. And I'm not talking about working in days or weeks. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates under eye bags and wrinkles from view in minutes. Did you hear that? In minutes. The science behind Plexiderm is incredible with clinical studies to back it up. If you look older and tired because of crow's feet, wrinkles, or under eye bags, you can look younger in just minutes with Plexiderm. See for yourself. Watch a real video with real people and see how fast crow's feet, wrinkles, and under eye bags disappear. Those results are backed up by Plexiderm's 30-day satisfaction guarantee. Go to TriPlexiderm.com and use the coupon code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get my discount. That's TriPlexiderm.com with the code TOM, T-H-O-M, or call 1-800-685-1292 and mention TOM. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's the Mueller Report, page 129. This is the part about Paul Manafort, who served on the Trump campaign as campaign chairman from March to August of 2016. Manafort had connections to Russia through his prior work for Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska and later through his work for a pro-Russian regime in Ukraine. Manafort stayed in touch with these contacts during the campaign period through Konstantin Kalimnik, a longtime Manafort employee who previously ran Manafort's office in Kiev and who the FBI assesses to have ties to Russian intelligence. Manafort instructed Rick Gates, his deputy on the campaign and a longtime employee, to provide Kalimnik with updates on the Trump campaign, including internal polling data, although Manafort claims not to recall that specific instruction. Manafort expected Kalimnik to share that information with others in Ukraine and with Deripaska. Gates periodically sent such polling data to Kalimnik during the campaign. Manafort also twice met Kalimnik in the United States during the campaign period and conveyed campaign information. The second meeting took place on August 2, 2016 in New York City. Kalimnik requested the meeting to deliver in person a message from former Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych, who was then living in Russia. The message was about a peace plan for Ukraine that Manafort has since acknowledged was a backdoor means for Russia to control eastern Ukraine. Several months later, after the presidential election, Kalimnik wrote an email to Manafort expressing the view, which Manafort later said he shared, that the plan's success would require U.S. support to succeed. Quote, all that is required to start the process is a very minor wink or slight push from Donald Trump, end quote. The email also stated that if Manafort were designated as the U.S. representative and started the process, Yanukovych would ensure his reception in Russia, quote, at the very top level. Manafort communicated with Kalimnik about peace plans for Ukraine on at least four occasions after their first discussion of the topic on August 2nd. December 2016, the Kalimnik email described above, January 2017, February 2017, and again in the spring of 2018. The office received numerous Manafort email and text communications and asked President Trump about the plan in written questions. The investigation did not uncover evidence of Manafort's passing along information about Ukrainian peace plans to the candidate or anyone else in the campaign or the administration. The office was not, however, able to gain access to all of Manafort's electronic communications. In some instances, messages were sent using encrypted applications. And while Manafort denied that he spoke to members of the Trump campaign or the new administration about the peace plan, he lied to this office and the grand jury about the peace plan and his meetings with Kalimnik. 
and his unreliability on this subject was among the reasons that the district judge found he was in breach of his cooperation agreement. The Mueller office could not reliably determine Manafort's purpose in sharing internal polling data with Kalimnik during the campaign period. Manafort, deleted by Bill Barr, did not see a downside to sharing campaign information and told Gates that his role in the campaign would be, quote, good for business and potentially a way to be made whole for work he previously had completed in the Ukraine. As to Deripaska, Manafort claimed that by sharing campaign information with him, Deripaska might see value in their relationship and resolve a disagreement, a reference to one or more outstanding lawsuits. Because of questions about Manafort's credibility and our limited ability to gather evidence on what happened to the polling data after it was sent to Kalimnik, the Mueller office could not assess what Kalimnik or others he may have given it to did with that polling data. The office did not identify evidence of a connection between Manafort's sharing polling data and Russia's interference in the election, which had already been reported in U.S. media outlets at the time of the August 2nd meeting. The investigation did not establish that Manafort otherwise coordinated with the Russian government on its election interference efforts. A. Paul Manafort's ties to Russia and Ukraine. Manafort's Russian contacts during the campaign and transition period stem from his consulting work for Deripaska from approximately 2005 to 2009, and his separate political consulting work in Ukraine from 2005 to 2015, including through his company DMP International LLC, which will be referred to in the future as DMI. Kalimnik worked for Manafort in Kiev during this entire period and continued to communicate with Manafort through at least June 2018. Kalimnik, who speaks and writes Ukrainian and Russian, facilitated many of Manafort's communications with Deripaska and with Ukrainian oligarchs. Subtitle 1, Oleg Deripaska Consulting Work. In approximately 2005, Manafort began working for Deripaska, a Russian oligarch who has a global empire involving aluminum and power companies and who is closely aligned with Vladimir Putin. A memorandum describing work that Manafort performed for Deripaska in 2005 regarding the post-Soviet republics referenced the need to brief the Kremlin and the benefits that the work could confer on the Putin government. And that was in quotes. Gates described the work. Manafort did for Deripaska as political risk insurance and explained that Deripaska used Manafort to install friendly political officials in countries where Deripaska had business interests. Manafort's company earned tens of millions of dollars from its work for Deripaska and was loaned millions of dollars by Deripaska as well. In 2007, Deripaska invested through another entity in Pericles Emerging Market Partners, LP, also known as Pericles, an investment fund created by Manafort and former Manafort business partner Richard Davis. The Pericles Fund was established to pursue investments in Eastern Europe. Deripaska was the sole investor. It's the Mueller report. James in Chicago. Hey, James, what's on your mind today? It's kind of been a little disconcerting um, that I've been seeing a lot of people have been getting uh, pretty upset that Nancy Pelosi hasn't started impeachment proceedings yet against the president. And I, I uh -huh. think I understand why she hasn't. Uh -huh. Obviously, uh, our uh, American democracy, it seems like, runs in news cycles, and people tend to forget things very, very quickly. And we're not here to convince the rest of the Democrats. We're here to convince everybody else. So I believe that she's right. waiting until the very last second, basically until basically uh, towards the uh, presidential election, so that all that stuff comes out at the same time that we're getting ready to vote for the for the man and, and everybody else who would have hopefully possibly doesn't because it's in their face at that time 
Right. My take on this, and I shared this yesterday, is, you know, she doesn't even have half her caucus. And she keeps saying that, and people keep not hearing that. And the real cowards here are not Nan- is not Nancy Pelosi. The real cowards are the Democrats who are not willing to come out and say, yes, I think that there should be an impeachment inquiry. And that needs to be done, and it needs to be done now. James, thanks a lot for the call. Steve in Washington. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind today? Yes, Tom, I've got two comments. One, the only way you're going to take Donald Trump out of office is to remove all of the people that are supporting him. Mitch McConnell, Barr, you have to remove them to get rid of him. And he knows that. And two... Well... Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you know, Mitch McConnell's not going to be removed until 2020 at the earliest. He's running for re-election. you got Amy McGrath, I believe her name is, running against him. She may be a strong challenger, but he's going to have millions of dollars behind him. So you've got A, that, and then B, getting Bill Barr out would require impeachment. And that proceeding is not going to happen anytime soon. So I agree with your political assessment, Steve, but I don't think what we're going to see happen is anything close to that. Yeah, I don't believe the Democrats are ready to do that. But well, it's not that they're ready to do that or not ready to do that. It's that the time necessary to do that is going to take you beyond the 2020 election. Right. But if he gets reelected in 2020, does that mean we stop trying to get rid of him? No, it doesn't. I think if he gets reelected in 2020, it means the end of American democracy. Completely. He will... And this is just my opinion. He will create, or the Republican Party will create, another war to justify keeping him in over two terms. And two, I agree. it's been shown in the past that that's what the Republican Party does. Yeah, I'm completely with you. And all you have to do is go back to 20... What year was it Obama was running for re-election? It was uh, 2012, the 2012 election. Just before that election... Donald Trump was tweeting that any minute now, Barack Obama is going to start a war with Iran in order to get himself reelected. He thinks this is how you run for reelection is by becoming a war president, which, by the way, is not unique to him. It's exactly what George W. Bush did with his war in Iraq. That was a 2004 election, re-election strategy. Back to you, Steve. Yes. Okay. And my second comment, Tom, is the aluminum steel plant in Kentucky. Yeah. That's just like the Keystone Pipeline. How many people do they think they're going to employ? Where is the money going? If you've got a Russian oligarch owning the company, do you think the money's going to stay in the United States? No. It's a money laundering scheme. And that's all it's going to be. Well, it may be a money laundering scheme. This is true of any foreign business that does business in the United States. The profits go outside the United States. It's one of the reasons why other countries strictly regulate that kind of behavior, whereas one-seventh of all assets in the United States are now foreign-owned. That number was like, you know, one or two percent when Reagan came into office. Steve, I'm out of time, but, but thanks a lot for the call. Morris in Los Angeles. Hey, Morris, what's up? All right, my brother, you ask, you ask, what do we need to do? No problem. We need us a humane think tank. They got one. We're going to get us a left-wing think tank. Now, Tom Steyer, he got some money, right? So he's going to go ahead and finance our propaganda station, our radios and TVs and whatnot. We're going to have one called the Traitor oh, I, I wish he would. He's Instead, he's decided he's going to run for president. Side. That's what we need right now because it's about controlling the narrative. we got false narratives out there, right? we got to control the narrative. America's not going to apologize for being racist, so let's just move on. What do we need? A think tank 
on the left side. Let's go, Tom Steyer. Stop getting on TV, talk about impeachment. Let's see if you're going to be real about protecting this country. Use your money to finance with Rupert Murdoch because some of these other people are using their money for it to control the damn narrative. Thank you, my brother. Yeah. Morris, I wrote an op-ed back, I don't know, maybe two, three months ago, explicitly, specifically, addressed to Tom Steyer. At that point in time, Clear Channel, what used to be called Clear Channel, is now called iHeartRadio, was for sale. And I was like, here's a network of radio stations with, you know, something close to a thousand radio stations, and I think they might be down to like seven, eight hundred now. And it's for sale. I mean, you know, for a billion dollars. Tom Steyer, you're a billionaire. Buy it. And put progressive programming on. This, you know, so much could be done. I mean, we really need to be building out a left-wing infrastructure in this country because progressive messages and, frankly, progressive conversations like the ones that we're having today are just not happening on the American airwaves. You know, people listen to the show and they hear my advertisements for the X chair and they always ask, is the X chair really as comfortable as you say it is? And my answer is always yes. In fact, if you, I probably don't do as an adequate job of describing just how great this chair feels. So take my advice, get one to feel it for yourself. Thanks to X chair's 30 day, no questions asked, guarantee of complete satisfaction. You have no risk. So if you're wondering what I say is true, try it for yourself. Once you feel the X-Chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar support, or DVL, you'll understand exactly why I love my X-Chair so much. Take advantage of X-Chair's new financing option and increase your productivity with the right model for you. The X-Basic or X-1 through the X-4. X-Chair can fit your body and your budget. X-Chair is on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com. Or call 1-844-4X-Chair. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code X wheels and you'll get a free set of X wheels with your chair. X chair Tom, X chair THOM.com. Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. On the line with us is Bob Nay, the author of Sideswiped, former congressman from Ohio. And this report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do, Ellen Ratner's new book. Hey, Bob, what's the latest on your windscreen here? Well, Tom, it certainly has been an immigration weekend to be seen, that's for sure, and we can get into that in a second. Well, what's so amazing to me, Bob, is that the number of arrests and the type of arrests that happened this weekend were actually lower in number and of the same type as happened during the entire Obama presidency. There was really nothing to see here. And, and in fact, Trump has deported, uh, in his two and a half years, has deported far fewer people than Obama did in any year. It's not that, you know, he's got some big crusade going. It's that he's got this giant publicity machine. He's doing a daily reality show out of the White House. And the reality show last week and the week before was, I'm going to, you know, millions of people are going to, and it scared the crap out of the entire Hispanic community or anybody who had extended family or friends who are here without documentation and people hiding in their houses and things. But it was a stunt. Anyhow, back to you, Bob. What? That's what I was saying when we say amazing immigration weekend. It was more argument over immigration than it was actually anything else. And people are saying, well, you know, he's moving forward. And what I thought was absolutely mind-blowing, if you look at the numbers of 
what exists, the actual numbers under the Obama administration, and you're totally correct, they far outweigh any amount of numbers under President Trump, which probably infuriates, frankly, the president if those numbers were out there. But there's still the perception that this was a big immigration weekend as far as going in and removing people, which actually basically didn't happen to any extent across the six or seven cities that it was mentioned. But it didn't stop Kellyanne Conway from attacking Joe Biden over the Obama administration and how many people were actually deported under President Obama, which if you look at that, that is the most hypocritical attack humanly possible because the Trump administration is trying to deport, trying in, in essence, or making it seem like they're going to deport everybody under the sun, yet Kelly and Conway flex by attacking Joe Biden for deportations under President Obama. The one, the one thing Donald Trump knows, and he learned this very well when, when he was trained how to be a reality TV star by NBC, to the, at no doubt an incredible cost, was that it doesn't matter what's real, it just matters what people believe is real. Correct. So people with the base are happy that he's carrying out a certain amount of the deportations, which again, I surfed from 4.30 this morning, Tom, preparing for stations to try to find some stats on it to try to find video on it something mm. of that nature and it basically was a mild weekend when it came actually to the deportation process now yep. that might be a smokescreen though for a rule that he's going to be doing and i think that rule will be tomorrow he's publishing a rule that will in fact say if you're coming from another country and you're seeking asylum this would be in the United States. Right. The first country that you pass through, you have to apply in that country. Well, you have to apply to that country, in fact. I, my, my reading of that rule is that if you go from Guatemala, Honduras, or El Salvador into Mexico to try to get to the United States, you may not, apply for, you may not even apply for Correct. asylum at the U.S. Embassy in Mexico. You have to apply to Mexico for asylum. Correct. Yeah. So the first country you enter is where you're going to apply for the asylum. Right. But if you're intended to go to the United States, technically you're not going to be able to reach that. Now, what are the odds on this being upheld by a court? Frankly, they are 50-50, actually. Mm -hmm. So they could be upheld. Yeah. So there's a court process. It's just like today, Judicial Watch, you know, I monitor all these groups. Judicial Watch, a conservative group, put out a press release today bragging about 250,000 people that notices were sent out today in Kentucky, and it did note in there attacking the Democratic Secretary of State of Kentucky as holding this process up, but they got an agreement out of the Commonwealth of Kentucky Judicial Watch to remove 250,000-some people. This is the same group that was getting a notice and a legal document in California to remove 1.6 million people. So unless there is some type of maybe congressional or federal action to try to fight this, it's going to be a state-by-state process and a lot of this is under the radar screen tom yeah as you know yeah under the radar screen yep and then we when we get to this battle with the president obviously and by the way just as i've talked to people in dc today and i kind of thought of myself you know the president entering this fray with his racist comment about go back to your country you know where yeah. you came from go back to where you came from actually if he had stayed out of that it wasn't as bright a move getting in there. Had he stayed out of it, there might have been more conflict between, you know, what happened with, well, this, with AOC. Right. This, this race is, yeah, yeah, actually, he's pushing the Democratic Party back together. I agree with you. But you were a Republican member of Congress from Ohio. And I understand you're not a Republican any longer. But 
Do you think that the Republican Party is going to push back now that Trump has basically taken Nixon's Southern strategy and put it out in the open? Well, I think eventually as the election nears and the 22-some seats are up, especially in the Senate, I think eventually there will be some pushback. But right now, everybody is staying tight-lipped on the entire issues, what they're doing. I think, though, if he continues to delve into these waters, which, again, he should have stayed out of it, the statement he made, of course, is outrageous. He just doubled down. Well, he did, because he doesn't care. Right. He doesn't care. I think this is his reelection strategy. I think he's scared to death. If he doesn't get reelected, he's going to end up in prison. And he thinks that if he can get enough of his base out, he'll win. And I think he might be right, Bob. What do you think? Well, I think I think he will be pushing to the wall. I just don't think he cares. In fact, Tom, if he will run over Republicans themselves, remember that. Oh, sure. Yeah, he has no loyalty to party. I mean, he needs to be a Democrat. Speaker Ryan last week, former Speaker. Yeah, yeah, I got it. Bob Nay. Bob, it's always great talking with you, and I always learn something. Thank you so much. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Welcome back. Amazing stuff. Absolutely amazing stuff. Tom in Media, Pennsylvania. Hey, Tom, what's on your mind? Yeah, I think that to me, what Trump says on his Twitter and what he does is far less important to me than the economy, what I got to pay in taxes. I'm retired and I'm going to be on Medicare next year. The economy far overarch any feelings that I have for Trump and his emails. I mean, yeah, he does some weird things, but the alternative to me is worse. I mean, he's not the greatest president in the world, and he does things that makes me cringe, but the alternative to me right now is worse. I vote with my pocketbook, and I am very, very strong about we need to control our borders and get control of our immigrants, uh, particularly if the Democrats want to have Medicare for all. There were a couple of points you made there that I think that we could, you know, probably go around in circles on like by the way tom just to be clear can you name one democrat one in congress one nationally elected democrat there's there's like you know nearly 300 of them maybe more add the senate and the house together one democrat who's actually in favor of quote open borders yes i believe uh, the ones that are running for president they said that they have no idea of the wall. Once you step put here, all you have to do is read your little asylum paper and you're in. Now, during the Democratic debates... No, you're not. You're not. If you claim that you are a refugee, you have the right to go before a judge. And the vast majority, well over 90% of those people who go before judges, are told, no, you may not be a refugee in the United States, and they get deported. What was happening was up until about five years ago, most of the people coming to this country were not seeking refuge. They were seeking a better life. They were looking for work. And because Ronald Reagan stopped enforcing the law that said that if you are an employer and you hire somebody who's not here legally, you can go to jail or you can get a fine. Reagan stopped enforcing that in 86 in order to break the unions. And it did. It completely busted the construction unions, largely destroyed the meatpacking unions because non-citizen immigrant labor came in and took those jobs. So if you don't want people who are coming here looking for work to come here, Start putting wealthy white people who employ them in jail, number one. I agree 100%. And, I agree 100%. I've talked to Congress. And you don't need a wall for that, it. Tom. We've had a border exactly. with Mexico for 230 years, and, and we've only had a wall for about 30 years. You don't need a wall if you don't have Reagan's policies. 
you know, I get what you're saying, and I really think that this is going to be very, very dangerous. This is dynamite. This is explosive and dangerous to the Democrats. And what the Democrats yeah, on the in the debate stage were saying yeah. essentially is, if somebody is fleeing, you know, the horrors of someplace else, we should, you know, we should at least treat them like, de you know, they shouldn't be a hundred to a cage designed for thirty people. You know, if, if you're going to lock them up or you're going to and, and we shouldn't be separating children from their families just to try to punish them to, to cause other people to say, no, I don't want to go through that. I don't want my family to go through that. That's inhumane. Yeah, and I don't want. Yeah. And I don't want open borders either. I think that a physical barrier. Nobody either, wants open. And, border. Even, and even if we were to have a physical. Barrier well, we have an open border with Canada, Canada Tom. Border. You want to close that? What's that? You want to close the border with Canada? No. They're not coming. We're not getting a lot of illegals from there because they have to, you know. Because they have, have a national health care system. What's that? They have a national health care system. They have a better quality of life than we do. And how many millions of Americans are fleeing there? Well, Americans have been trying to go to Canada for a long, long time. Canada won't let them in. Because oh, well, in Canada, do the same thing. and well, yeah. no, this is my point. This is the point I made earlier. This is, by the way, Mitt Romney's point. Canada says if you want to work in Canada or if an employer hires somebody in Canada who's not a Canadian citizen and is not there with their equivalent of a green card, that employer can go to jail or at least face very, very large fines. And so if as an American, you go to Canada and you try to you even try to open a bank account or rent a house, if you're not there legally, you can't do it. And I agree. I so, agree. you know, I don't have a problem with that here in the United States. There's That's no a whole with our politicians. Yeah. The Democrats need to fine tune their message on this. Anyhow, yeah. Tom, thank you for the conversation. Okay, I, but I, I just wanted to say it's, yeah. this was less. Our conversation was less certainly about racism than it was about economy and the border. And that's what I think we should focus. I get it. I get it. I Thanks. enjoy it. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, good talking to you. Pastor John in New Haven, Connecticut. Hey, John, what's up? My good friend, uh, Tom, keep on talking about the Southern strategy, please. Keep on talking about that. You know the book I always mention, Dog Whistle Politics, how coded racial appeals have reinvented racism and wrecked the middle class. Donald Trump is brilliant. He is brilliant. The man is on his way to re-election, and if he wins, God bless him, because the Democrats have not followed page 18 in this book. Let me just read the first thing to you. This is by Professor E. Handy Lopez. Let's start with an open secret. Republicans rely on racial entreaties to help win elections. In 2010, the chairman of the Republican National Committee, Michael Steele, acknowledged, for the last 40 years, we have had a Southern strategy that alienated many minority voters by focusing on the white male vote in the South. Right. Listen, the Republicans have used race in no, order to win elections. I got it. John, I got to run, but thanks. Yes, it is the Southern strategy, and it's out there nakedly. And frankly, any Republican who says, well, you know, I'm just voting my taxes, is complicit. That's you, Tom. <laughs> Not me, the caller named Tom, who, who uh, tried to pitch that at us, and I, I probably should have pushed it back a lot harder. Anyhow, thanks a lot for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It needs you. So get out there, get active. Tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.